Second week this, uh, this morning, second Sunday on uh, talking about eschatology in light of the book of Revelation and um, this week I want to talk a little bit about um, some aspects of eschatology that aren't really addressed in Revelation very much and, uh, and one in particular that isn't addressed at all. So let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, that you are here with us. Thank you so much for your word. We pray for your guidance, for your help. And we pray that this would be uh, constructive in our faith as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've actually... um, The three subjects that I was thinking about, the eschatology, that, that we don't see a lot of in Revelation. Um, the the concept of the rapture, for instance. Um, now we did see that a little bit in Revelation, um, and so um, it's not that there's nothing in it, nothing there. Um, but you know, in First Thessalonians four, it says, "The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord." And that's been taken um, as. By some, as a something that takes the believers off of the earth and leaves the non-believers on the earth to fend for themselves, um, I don't believe that's what's happening here. I believe that this is referring to um, the very day of the Lord's return, that we will be caught up with the Lord initially. And then, uh, in much the same way, uh, by the way, we need, you need a Bible today. So if you don't have a Bible, I have a few extra Bibles here. But, Chris, you need a Bible? Yeah, I left my phone. There you go. You guys got one on your phone? Stephen, you got one on your phone? Either that or you're checking your email. <laughs> and so... Um, the word there is actually the word used to refer to what happened often in a military situation where an army would be attacking a city and they would call out for all those who were on their side to come out of the city and join them before they attacked. And you know, you can see that's a, that's a, a sensitive issue in terms of uh, military attacks because you know, you don't want to kill the people that are on your side. And, um, and so that's basically the way it's been taken. And I, um, the, the time we referred to this in the book of Revelation was, um, I, funny, I wrote the verse down, but I didn't write the chapter down. I think it's either 13 or 17. These pages are so small. Somebody get that it takes me a long time to turn each page. It's like each one's a razor thin. I can't even. 
1312. No, it's not that one. So somebody look up 1712. Yes, it's 1112. <laughs> so 1112, I said, I think refers to this, where it says, um, this is in the story of the two witnesses, which is the witnessing church, and then the uh, the they're, the witnessing the two witnesses are killed, and the celebration of the nations because of their deaths, and then it says, but after the th- this is verse eleven of chapter twelve, I'm sorry, chapter eleven, eleven eleven. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, their enemies, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and, uh, and that's the judgment day. So, um, And even in the First Thessalonians passage, it doesn't seem... I mean, it's, uh, they're caught up with him in the clouds so that they'll be with the Lord forever. Now, um, you know, they take it that there's a millennium in between this event when the church is removed and, and when the Lord returns. But I think it's all at the same, same basic episode. Or it's, uh, even though it, you know, it's bang, 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 all in the same day. Anyway, um, and I think that's what Matthew... 24 is referring to as well um, where Jesus says, he's talking about the judgment day as were the days of Noah so there will be the, so will be the coming of the son of man this is Matthew 24, 37 for as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage in the day, until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, and one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. So, the, you know, the, um, it, it, again, it's, it's a, not that they're taken for a thousand years. They're just taken for a moment until, the Lord, until they're all ready to descend. Supposedly, the people of God with the Lord in coming to the earth in judgment, and that's one of the reasons why it says we'll judge the the earth. Okay, then the other thing is the Antichrist, and and that is, uh, you know, we saw that we've seen that in Second uh, Thessalonians two three to ten, very familiar. Uh, concept among many Christians that they want, they talk about a lot let no, no one in any way deceive you for it will not come that is the judgment day unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God displaying himself as being God Do you not, so he's saying <coughs> before the end this is going to happen 
So um, don't let anybody persuade you that the end has already happened because this hasn't happened yet. Um, do Do you not remember that while I was with you, I was telling you these things? And there's uh, several places in uh, in First John where he mentions the Antichrist in a, such a way that it makes it clear that it's uh, the Antichrist is a in, an individual, but also there are many Antichrists, uh, lowercase a, that are that come in the spirit of the Antichrist, and um, there seems to be a close connection between. The Antichrist and that by capital A and the Beast, which is the second of the Trinity, the evil Trinity, the dragon, the Beast, and the uh, false prophet. And we see um, that Beast in Revelation uh, 13 and that description of him. And that, and even before he's introduced. In 13, uh, we find him in chapter 11, again with these two uh, witnesses, where it says in verse 7, when they have finished their testimony, that is the, uh, the two witnesses, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street. So, again, it's, it's really interesting to me that the... Uh, that the church's witness is stopped at this time. You know, it says, when they have finished their testimony, the beast rises up and kills them. So there comes a moment in history when the church finishes its testimony and, um, and basically it beca- it's the day of evil, the day of the Antichrist, whatever you can refer to. Now, all this is interesting and but you know we, what I really want to talk about this morning is actually a little bit related to this and it's in Romans chapter 11 and that has to do with the future conversion of Israel so you if you have a bible turn to revelation I'm sorry Romans chapter 11 I should have put a bookmark in it, it took me 5 minutes to Find it with these razor thin pages before. There it is. So, um, if you're at all familiar with uh, Romans 11, you know, the book of Romans is written um, partly to explain about Israel written to the Romans, so by and large, you know, most of the people in the church at Rome were Gentiles. Not a, not a Jewish city, it's a, Rome, it's a Roman city, a Gentile city. Though very cosmopolitan, so it's mixed. And he's, he's uh, obviously through chapter 9, even earlier, and, in, in, uh, you know, he explains the sin of mankind in chapter 1, and then he explains the sin of the Jews in chapter 2. And then in chapter 3 he says, um, you know, he says that both of them are in need of the Savior. And he begins to unpack the, the uh, whole issue of the, 
the salvation that Christ brought. But then when he gets back to 9, he goes back, he starts in 9. He starts in 9 by, by asking the question that then he addresses for the next three chapters. And in, the, in that beginning of 9, he basically asks, well, I'll read it. Um, he's talking about um, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart because of my fellow Jews who are cursed and cut off from Christ Um, they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption and all these other things all these advantages that the Jews had but then he addresses the question if the Israelites, if the Jews don't believe, then what about the promises of God? God made all these promises that the Jews would one day flourish, that the Jews would one day become a great nation and and all these things. And now the Jews are pretty much turned away from God. So that's the question he's answering. And he goes through, of course, the whole issue of what is really a Jew and how there's People that are, um, you know, that God from the very beginning didn't just choose all the Jews; He chose special, certain ones. And but anyway, He gets in chapter eleven. He's still talking about Jews and Gentiles. Nine, ten, eleven follow the same theme. And He's talk. He uses the analogy of a tree in chapter eleven. And this tree is basically the tree of the covenant. And uh, the idea is, you know, it's like a tree rooted next to the stream. It, it sinks its roots down into God and it flourishes and God gives it fruit. And, and uh, it's the tree of salvation. So in that light, let me pick up in verse 24. For if you were cut out, I'm sorry, if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Okay, so I... um, I don't expect, if, you, if you're not familiar with this, the flow of thought here, I don't expect you to understand this. Stay with me and, uh, and let me help you to understand. So, he's talking to the Gentiles. And he's referring to them as branches on a wild olive tree. And they have been cut off from those wild olive trees and they've been grafted in to what he calls... Um, a cultivated olive tree. So this is the Gentiles being grafted into this tree of salvation. So the Gentiles who were apart from God, separated from God and on their own, now have been brought into the tree of salvation. And the analogy is that, you know, these branches being grafted in. And of course, if you've ever uh, spent much time in an orchard or anything like that, you know that this is just normal way that they work, where they're grafting uh, things into trees to make it grow what they want it to grow. So that all the readers would have been very familiar with this concept. 
And um, so, but it's, so his first point is that you Gentiles have been grafted into this tree. But he goes on to say, how much more will these, the natural branches, now the natural branches are the Jews. They're the ones who grew up in this cultivated tree in the first place. But now they've been cut off. It says that earlier. Um, that, the, that they've been cut off because they didn't have faith. Um, you know, God did not spare the natural branches in verse 21. And, and uh, verse 17, if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. So, the Jews have been, the unbelieving Jews have been cut off from the tree of the covenant, cut off from the tree of salvation, and the Gentile, many Gentiles who have become believers, not all Gentiles, just believing Gentiles have been grafted in. That's the analogy here, right? But he makes the point that these natural branches, which have been cut off, they might also be grafted back in to the tree. So, for instance, if there's a Jew that rejected Jesus, take his brothers, for instance, who rejected him, but then later came to believe. Well, they were grafted back in to that to this domesticated or, or uh, cultivated olive tree. So that's the analogy that he's talking about. Okay. So, and it, and it sort of implies that. Jews will be. He says, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? So there's still a road. Even though many of the Jews have walked away, have been cut off, there's still a road for them to return to Christ and be, and be regrafted into this tree. And part of the motivation that Paul has in writing this is because he senses that the, some of the Gentile believers are sort of getting a cocky, arrogant, pharisaical attitude towards the Jews, just like the Jews had towards them. You know, this is not really an ethnic problem. This is a human problem. That when we become the haves, we're, we look down on the have-nots. And so that's what he's trying, one of the purposes for writing this um, is, is to address that issue. But he also says some things that, that are, are important. And by the way, in this, um, this whole thing of, uh, I know this is a much debated passage and there are people that have different opinions. And my opinion is not a deeply studied opinion. Um, it just seems to me from reading it that it seems to be implying that there's going to be a large future conversion of the Jews but it but uh, I'm I've, I, here I am been pastor for 41 years and I've always been hesitant to talk about this because I really haven't devoted the kind of study that I, I wouldn't preach on this because I haven't done the due diligence. So take everything I say with that in mind. So, we just finished verse 24. 
And then we go to 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This is a really important verse in this whole question. A partial hardening has come upon the Jews until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So what that seems to me to mean is that you know, he's, he's talked about how many of the Jews have rejected Jesus. And that's the partial hardening. It's not all the Jews. He himself is a Jew. The apostles are all Jews. There's still a lot of Jewish Christians around. But a partial hardening has come to the Jews. But it's, there's a limit in time. The partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So in other words, Christ has opened the door to the Gentiles and they're flowing in and many Gentiles have become Christians. But what he says here sort of implies a time when that, the number of Gentile elect is going to be saved. And that will end, but implies that maybe you know, it says the partial hardening will is until the fullness of the Gentiles, implying that there'll be a, a time when <clears throat> that partial hardening will be removed, and the 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 Jews will come. And this is why we, I think it implies that it's at the end, at the very end, that the Jews, many of the Jews, I don't think all the Jews, but many of the Jews will come to Christ at the very end after the uh, the Gentile um, all the Gentiles who are elect have already become and that's why I connected in my own mind with the death of these two witnesses because the the uh, that we were just reading because the witness of the of the uh, church uh, will end but it actually says it in um, Oh, it's it's um, so the in in Re- Revelation twenty, remember where the beast is tied up and he's no longer able to uh, to deceive the nations. But then when he's released, which I think is you know at the same kind of time when there's uh, an unleashing of. Um, the Antichrist and the uh, and when the wit- when the two witnesses are killed, then um, he, the, the, the nations can be deceived again, right? Well, the nations remember means Gentiles. The word nations. Every time you see the word nations, it's the same word as the word Gentiles. So. Um, at that moment, the church's witness towards the nations will end, but that doesn't necessarily mean the Jews. That the, that the Jews will also be deceived. Anyway, so it seems like there's a little flip that goes on. Um, let me read that verse again. Verse 25 of Romans. We're in Romans 11 
25, and, and we're talking about the future conversion of the Jews. So, lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel, that's the present, until, future, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. So, it seems to me that he's implying in the first part that there's a time coming when the Gentiles will, all the Gentiles that are going to be saved are saved, and the partial hardening upon the Jews will end. And then he says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, there's no way you can take this to mean that every Jew in history is saved. I mean, every, Jesus says over and over, you know, there's no way to the Father but through me. And there's only one name given by what, which you might, uh, men might be saved. It's the name of Jesus. In Acts 4, you just can't conclude that when it says all Israel will be saved, that that means every Jew that's lived in history is saved because he's a Jew. Not only that, but what is a Jew? I mean, I took 23andMe test and found out that I have Jewish blood in me. You know, if I have Jewish blood in me, just a tiny bit, think about how many, what percentage of, of people in the world have it. It's a, a big number. It, it, it can't be salvation by ethnicity. This has to mean salvation by conversion. And it can't mean everyone in history, and I would imagine it doesn't mean everyone even who's alive at the time, but I'm not, that's just my guess, it's not you can't prove that, but the point is, it seems to me that this implies that there will be a, a time when, as a whole, the Jewish people will come to Christ and be saved at the end of history. Um, and then it quotes scripture as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So this day in the future that he's referring to, when, um, when the Lord will work among the Jews and banish ungodliness and uh, renew his covenant with them take away and forgive their sins. And then it goes on in verse 28. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for, our, for your sake. In other words, as far as you're concerned, in the right now, the Jews are your enemies in the sense that they are enemies of the gospel. So, I, and I don't mean that there are enemies and that, you know, we treat them like enemies. I mean that they are, we don't treat a, a Jewish person as if he's a Christian, as if he is, um, you know, believes in the same God that we do, or that he is a true believer on his way to heaven. They are enemies of the gospel. They've rejected Christ. So as regards the gospel, they're enemies, but as regards the election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. In other words, God now, and you know, individuals who are rejecting the gospel, he sees them as enemies, but he still 
has a purpose of election that he loves them because of their forefathers. He's going to save them in the end. That's the way I take it. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. In other words, when we think about Jesus coming and being rejected by the Jews and the Gentiles by and large receiving him or many Gentiles receiving him and the church becoming by and large a Gentile church in the world we should never think that this means that God has divorced Israel set them aside and they're his enemies forever and now he's not interested in them anymore because in the mind of God he still has a purpose for them he still has a future for them he's still going to save them in the end not every individual but the, the, uh, as a group there's going to be uh, salvation in the end of history it seems to me that that's what's going on but we can talk about things, questions and stuff in just a minute um, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Verse 30. For just as you were at one time disobedient to, but just as you were one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. In other words, the Jews rejected it. That's how the gospel came to you. So they too have now been disobedient. Why? In order that by the mercy shown to you, they may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So in a very similar way to the way Gentiles who were once disobedient and have now many of them started coming to Christ. So he foresees a future time for the Jews when they will have gone through the same process. Right now, what the Jews are doing is very similar to what our forefathers did for thousands of years until Christ came, until the gospel came to our forefathers and that's going to happen and so they're going through that now where they're rejecting Christ, they're pushing God away but the whole idea is that what happened to us is also going to happen to them he's going to come and he's going to save them he is going to have mercy upon them. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So he's, everybody's got to go through this. Everybody's got to have their rebellion, their turning away so that they can see their need for mercy and in the end God will show them mercy. And then he erupts in this, you know, doxology of, of wonder and praise. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might re be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And then he changes the subject. So, his, this, you know, we've heard this eruption of praise all along, but what he seems to be having my, directly in mind is this amazing mercy that was shown to us and which, 
which will again be shown to the Jews at some point in the future. So, what do you think? Do you have questions or comments or anything about that? Yeah, of course. But I mean, we're supposed to know what we're told, so we don't want to um, just assume that God gave us all these things and we're not supposed to try to understand what they mean. But you're right, they're very mysterious too. And, and uh, they're you know that so many of the people in the New Testament in the time when Jesus came hadn't gotten it right, but Jesus and and they they uh, are held accountable by Jesus for not getting it right. But they were they're never told. Well, um, you know your problem was you tried too hard to understand what the Bible said. You know it was a matter of the heart ultimately. That that uh, and I'm not saying that they were supposed to understand every detail, but they were um, accountable to do their best with humble hearts to receive and understand what God had told them. So so are we. I mean, to me, one of the reasons that this is important is because. It's so easy for the Gentile church to give up on the Jewish people in terms of being believers. And if I know that there'll be a a mass conversion of the Jews in the end, that changes the way that I think about my Jewish friends and the Jewish uh, community in the world. And... uh, and it makes me want to pray for them. And it makes me want to, uh, you know, share Christ with them and befriend them. It just, it warms my heart to think that there's, that there's this in the future coming. So that, to me, is why it's so important. Um, it's not just, oh, we'll see what's going to happen. It's, you know, that the, you know, I don't know. I don't know when this end is going to come. It could be in my lifetime. It it could be past the lifetimes of, you know, newborn babies in our church. It could be hundreds of years into the future. Who knows? Um, It's always easy to think it's going to be soon. And we're supposed to think it's going to be soon. But we also have to realize that many people down through the ages have thought it was soon. And it wasn't so soon for them. So um, we can't know that. But it's, to me, it's just a wonderful thing to know that this, it's like a dead tree. You know, it's like a tree that looks like it's got no life in it. And it just sits there and sits there year after year. And then all of a sudden, you know that this tree's going to grow up. That this tree's going to have leaves sprout from it one spring. It's like, Wow. How could that happen? Anyway. Who else? Chris? Um, Just in light of some of the topics here, just a couple things. Number one, I can can appreciate you telling us that a lot of this, well, not a lot, but 
that this is not something that you've studied extensively, but I know that you know extensively a lot and can work it out, and, and I can appreciate that part of it. But the other thing, as a whole over the, these months, I can these topics and the whole portion of Revelation being taught without firm knowledge in relating it to current events. Because so much of what I experienced in the teaching that I've had in the past has been like, and this is why right. China is so dangerous, or right. I just wanted to, at, at some point in time tell you that I can appreciate just hearing the word this without putting it to Right. Church of what's happening now, kind of thing. Gotcha. Was there another thing? No, I just want okay. to let you. I, Great. This is a comment, not a question. Thanks. Thank you. George. Another comment. I'm just thinking of when uh, friends of ours in college who were Jewish became believers. What a, I'm just impressed with what an immense change. I understand it, Jews are not Trinitarian, so that whole idea is foreign to them. But then also to realize that their Savior came, and all these centuries, the Jews never recognized that. That's such a massive shift in their mind. Yeah. Yes, it seems like even bigger. And the reason is, I think, is that for Jews it's personal. It's not, um, it's more personal. Because for them, you know, the, the fact that Jesus is, Jew, is Jewish, the fact that Christianity sort of hijacked in their minds Judaism, and, and now, if you hear someone talking about Moses and Exodus, it's probably a Christian, not a Jew. You know, their big salvation event. And we talk about it more than they do. Not, I don't mean that they, we talk about more than they do per person. I mean, because there's so many more Christians in the world than there are Jews in the world, it gets talked about in the world much more by Christians than it does by Jews. And, and uh, the fact that so many um, you know, Christians have, I mean, obviously some of it's just terrible and, uh, you know, sinful ways that Christians have treated Jews as if, you know, they're resp each individually responsible for the crucifixion and, and as if the rest of us aren't, you know, which we all are, right? So there's a negative element to it that makes it personal, but there's also just the, this has been rubbed in their faces and, it, and they hate it. They just hate it. The Jews reacted against it worse than the Romans. I mean, it was Pilate who was trying to get out of crucifying him, right? And it was the Jews are going, crucify him, crucify him. That's just a little picture of, of uh, 
the Gentile and the Jewish response to Jesus. You know, they, they, in the Middle Ages, they took Isaiah 53 out of their liturgy. Did you know that? I, I heard that they don't read Isaiah. Yeah, they, they don't read Isaiah 53, which is the, you know, the suffering servant. Um, and, you know, it's like, it just raises too many questions. It's too troubling. And it's quoted too, so often by Christians that a lot of Jews have heard it quoted by Christians, so it's like quoting Christian things if they, if they read it, so. I don't know. Did they? Are you saying they did? Or? No, I don't know. There it's mainly just the first verse. Isaiah 53, it's the whole chapter. In fact, it's the last couple of verses of chapter 52, too. Two is, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Any other comments or questions before we close? Okay, let's pray. Thank you, dear Father, for your word. And again, we humble ourselves before you and don't pretend that we have the ability in ourselves to grapple with the depths of its truths and we seek your wisdom and guidance pray for humble and open hearts and dear Lord we thank you that that uh, for these encouraging words about um, the Jewish people and we do pray that you would uh, continue to allow your church to have a heart for the Jewish people and to uh, to take initiative to proclaim the good news of the Messiah to them. And we pray, dear Lord, that you would draw many of them to yourself. And we look forward to this, uh, to the future day, dear Lord, when, when it, as far as we understand your word, many will come to know Jesus and, and be our brothers and sisters in eternity. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.